Welcome to the election ride home for Monday, July 15th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, Biden releases his health care policy. Delaney goes on firing line. The current state of the July debates. And Gabbard takes the weekend off for a very good reason. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. This morning, Joe Biden released his new health care policy. It's called, quote, the Biden plan to protect and build on the Affordable Care Act, end quote. In addition to the text of the policy, Biden released a video to promote it. In it, Biden stands in front of a mantelpiece with a triangle folded flag and a wooden case. Now, although it's not mentioned, that sure looks to me like the burial flag for Bo Biden, Joe's son, who died in 2015 and served in the U.S. Army from 2002 until his death. I think the symbolism there is obvious, given that Bo Biden died from brain cancer, and we are talking about healthcare policy here. Okay, so let's listen to the audio from that intro video. It was great being part of the first Democratic debate in Miami. The question was asked whether we support eliminating private health insurance. Some said yes, I said absolutely not. I believe we have to protect and build on Obamacare. That's why I proposed adding a public option to Obamacare as the best way to lower costs and cover everyone. I understand the appeal of Medicare for all, but folks supporting it should be clear that it means getting rid of Obamacare. And I'm not for that. I was very proud the day I stood there with Barack Obama and he signed that legislation. Never before had anyone ever been able to do that in the White House. 20 million Americans gained coverage, over 100 million with pre-existing conditions finally got protection. And most importantly, peace of mind. You know, I know how hard it is to get that passed. I watched it. Starting over makes no sense to me at all. I knew the Republicans would do everything in their power to repeal Obamacare. They still are. But I'm surprised that so many Democrats are running on getting rid of it. The Affordable Care Act was a historic achievement for President Obama. And if I'm elected president, I'm going to do everything in my power to protect it and build on it. Okay, so let's get into what's in the actual policy plan. The key item is adding a public option to Obamacare and allowing that Medicare-style option to compete alongside the existing private insurance market. In an interesting twist, this option would be available to anyone, even if you already get insurance from your employer. That's an expansion beyond what Obama's original vision for a public option was, and that may help win over some people who are in the center-left of this whole healthcare thing. In addition to the new public option, Biden's plan would reduce out-of-pocket expenses for all healthcare recipients in the U.S. and increase tax credits for people who pay for their own insurance, including expanding tax credits to everyone, not just people whose income is up to 400% of the poverty line, which is the current law. And of course, that's not all. Biden includes a proposal to rein in the rising cost of prescription drugs. If a company raises the price of its prescription drugs by more than the cost of inflation, Biden's plan would slap a tax penalty on the company. Now, how much is that penalty? It's not stated in the proposal, but okay, at least there's something there. Also, Biden's plan includes a variety of methods to increase the availability and affordability of generic drugs, some of which have been blocked from the market or had their prices raised by drug makers seeking additional profits. Oh, and yet another thing on this drug cost front, the Biden plan would eliminate a drug company tax break on their advertising. In addition to all that, Biden's plan would give Medicare the ability to negotiate drug prices directly with manufacturers, finally, and would allow importing prescription drugs from other countries. Both of these are methods of reducing prescription drug prices overall. 
Another interesting item in the proposal is that for the states that did not participate in Obamacare's expansion of Medicaid, Biden's plan would go ahead and do that for them. But in place of Medicaid, Biden would substitute his new Medicare-style public option. This would give an estimated 5 million low-income Americans in those states immediate access to the new public option at no cost to them. In a summary, Sam Baker at Vox pointed out that this could be controversial, writing, quote, In other words, non-expansion states would get a better deal than those that participated in the expansion, arguably rewarding their resistance to the ACA, end quote. That's a fair point, but I assume Biden's counterpoint would be, okay, fine, let's provide the Medicaid expansion states the same public option too. There are also provisions in the plan to expand access to contraceptives and abortion services, restore funding for Planned Parenthood, and make the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision an actual federal law. As we've discussed on this show previously, Biden would also eliminate the Hyde Amendment, which currently prevents any federal funding from going to abortion services. Okay, so having read through the policy and given you some highlights, I think the best way to understand this policy is as essentially Obamacare, or the Affordable Care Act if you prefer, with a whole bunch of additions and tweaks. In the written policy, Biden repeatedly points out existing legislative proposals that he would simply work to pass. This is a good example of not reinventing the wheel if there's already a solution on the table. Now, the issue of how exactly to pass that stuff if you don't also control the Senate, well, that's another matter. But to be frank, you couldn't do Medicare for all or really much of anything in the primary candidate's healthcare policies without Democratic control of the Senate anyway. It seems likely that even if the Senate remains in Republican control, the Biden plan might be able to pick up a few of its core points, like the drug price reduction stuff, in that chamber. All right, so as with all policy, I ask, what will this cost and how does the candidate plan to pay for it? Well, Biden addresses that. Reading from that section here, quote, The Biden plan will make health care a right by getting rid of capital gains tax loopholes for the super wealthy. Today, the very wealthy pay a tax rate of just 20% on long-term capital gains. According to the Joint Commission on Taxation, the capital gains and dividends exclusion is the second largest tax expenditure in the entire tax code. $127 billion in fiscal year 2019 alone. As president, Biden will roll back the Trump rate cut for the very wealthy and restore the 39.6% top rate he helped restore when he negotiated an end to the Bush tax cuts for the wealthy in 2012. Biden's capital gains reform will close the loopholes that allow the super wealthy to avoid taxes on capital gains altogether. The Biden plan will assure those making over $1 million will pay the top rate on capital gains, doubling the capital gains tax rate on the super wealthy. End quote. Now, you may note there is no overall price tag within that language, but the campaign did provide that in a call with reporters, saying the plan would cost $750 billion over a decade. According to the campaign, the tax code changes I just mentioned would add up to a full payment for that cost. So, in summary, Biden is proposing to expand Obamacare substantially, completing the original vision by including a public option and taking sort of a middle road on health care. This all adds up to one of the biggest disagreements Biden has with several major candidates in this field, some of whom support the Sanders Medicare for All bill, which would intentionally eliminate all private insurance. Watch this discussion in particular to see which candidates embrace the Biden plan now that we have two very clearly articulated options on the table, Medicare for All or what is essentially Obamacare 2.0.
The Election Ride Home is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard. You had to post on a bunch of job sites, read through stacks of resumes, run through a confusing review process. It was not great. Believe me, I was there. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash primary. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over a hundred of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one of them and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. And that technology helps you find the right fit. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, Election Ride Home listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com primary. That's ZipRecruiter.com P-R-I-M-A-R-Y. One last time, that's ZipRecruiter.com primary. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Yesterday, former Representative John Delaney went on firing line with Margaret Hoover for a sit-down interview. That show, if you're not familiar with it, airs on PBS and is a recent reboot of the classic show that was originally hosted by William F. Buckley. Okay, so the first thing I noticed was a clip from the show that Delaney chose to retweet. It came in the context of Hoover asking Delaney about his promise back in January to only work on bipartisan legislation or other bipartisan proposals during his first 100 days as president. Part of Delaney's overall pitch is that he's a moderate Democrat with a history of working with Republicans in Congress. So I need to play you this clip. Listen in. The real goal is to find those ideas where you can where you can get common ground. But can you have those ideas anymore? Yes. So when you were in Congress, how did that go for you? It went very well. I was ranked the third most bipartisan member of Congress. But how many bills did you pass? You know, a, a lot of amendments, not too many bills. I was in the minority the whole time, which makes it much harder. Yes. Because a lot of people introduce bills with just members of their own party. You know, I was known to always introduce bills that had Republican co-sponsors, for example, because I just feel like that's the way we need to work. And still none of them pass. So how do you well, actually persuade, not, but that, not bills, though? Yeah. So this, to me, is super interesting. Delaney chose to highlight that clip on his Twitter account as a win, but the reaction on Twitter was mixed. You had some of the people saying, hey, this is genuinely interesting to moderates and potentially even to Trump voters. Then everybody else was saying, yeah, but um, didn't Delaney just admit that he didn't actually succeed at the very thing he was touting? Meaning he did not, in fact, pass any bipartisan bills. Now, where you land on that is up to you, but it definitely shows where Delaney sits on the issue and shows that he sees his congressional record as a strength. Now, here's one more clip that Firing Line also posted on Twitter. This one has to do with Delaney's recent visit to a detention center and gets at the issue of immigration policy more broadly. Listen in. You went to the border recently. Yes. And you said when you listen to the stories from these people, you realize that everyone is leaving for the right reason. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? 
Well, so my wife and I went to Dilly, Texas, where the largest detention facility in the country is located. And there were 1,700 women and children in the facility when we went there. They're leaving because their kids were murdered or their kids were threatened. And they went to law enforcement. And the law enforcement are in bed with the gangs. So I think every American, if their children were threatened, would leave. And they're not worried about like whatever policies Trump's put in on the border. They're just leaving. So which is why I keep saying, if we want to fix the situation at the southern border, we actually have to do things to stabilize those three countries. So you're saying don't cut off their aid? Don't, not only not cut off their aid, but actually be much more proactive. All right, so the Delaney campaign did not retweet that one, but I think he did well in his response. And it's notable that his response actually lines up with many others in this field, like Julian Castro on immigration policy. They're essentially saying, let's invest in certain key Central American countries to improve the situation there locally as a root cause fix. So you reduce the need for people to leave those countries in search of asylum elsewhere. One last fun fact about Delaney before we move on. As I mentioned on Friday, there are two major candidates in this field who stand out as having been in this thing way longer than the rest. They are Andrew Yang at 616 days and Delaney, who holds the record at 717 days as of today. He announced on July 28th, 2017. That means in just under two weeks, he can celebrate his two-year anniversary as a Democratic primary candidate right before the July debates. Next up, let's talk about the current state of those July debates, like who's definitely in, who's maybe in, and who's probably out. The July debates have the same qualifying criteria as the June ones did, which means the candidates need to have either 65,000 unique donors, with at least 200 people donating from each of 20 states, or they need to get a minimum of 1% support in each of three qualifying polls sanctioned by the DNC. If you get both, that's great. If you get just one, you've got some potential problems. The candidates who currently have met both thresholds, which currently means they are very likely to be at the debate, are Biden, Booker, Buttigieg, Castro, Gabbard, Gillibrand, Harris, Inslee, Klobuchar, O'Rourke, Sanders, Warren, Williamson, and Yang. So that's 14 people who meet both criteria and thus are relatively safe. There are a total of 20 spots available on the stage across the two nights. Okay, so how about the candidates who have met one of the two thresholds? Well, here is that list. Bennett, Bullock, de Blasio, Delaney, Gravel, Hickenlooper, and Ryan. That's seven candidates. That means we have 21 total candidates trying to fit into 20 spots. Oh yeah, and in case you noticed Gravel in there, his campaign did indeed pass the fundraising threshold after I posted the show on Friday. So he has the donors he needs, but now he's in this seven-person tiebreaker thing to get into six seats. Incidentally, there are four more candidates in this race who, at least right now, don't appear to meet either criteria. They are Messam, Moulton, Sestak, and Steyer. It's certainly possible that one or more of them could pull in more polling or donors in the next day or so, but the cutoff is Tuesday, so this is probably the field we're looking at for the July debate. Now, Here's the trouble. The DNC has all these tie-breaking rules, and what they boil down to in this particular case is the DNC prefers better polling results over the donor threshold. So Gravel finds himself in a situation where he has only one poll that puts him at 1%, whereas the other six people vying for those spots all have three or more 1% polls. 
That means, unless one of them drops out, or Gravel suddenly gets more polling, Gravel will not survive the tie-breaking process and won't be in the debates. I discussed this last week, but I think it will come as a big surprise to a lot of donors who thought that meeting that donor threshold would be an automatic win. The campaign seemed to acknowledge this with an angry tweet on Saturday that read, quote, Mike has qualified for the debates, but with a raft of idiot centrists polling at 1% and with a DNC that would love to keep him out of the public eye, they are actively trying to screw us. But we'll fight back and make Mike's voice heard. That's our vow. End quote. Yeah, so making friends with the DNC, not high on the list of priorities for the Gravel campaign. Okay, so the odds of Gravel actually making the debates are very, very slim. To me, the only path for him would be for another candidate to drop out literally today or tomorrow. That is super unlikely, but not technically impossible, given that there's been so much chatter about, for instance, Hickenlooper having problems with fundraising and retaining staff. Now, having said that, I don't see a reason for Hickenlooper to gracefully exit when he has a clear path into a free nationally televised debate in two weeks just so that his seat would be filled by somebody else. Or at least, I don't think Hickenlooper would see it that way. Oh, and by the way, Hickenlooper just hired a new communications director, so reports of his candidacy's demise may be exaggerated. So here's what happens next. On Wednesday evening, the DNC will announce the final list of qualifying candidates. It's very likely to be the list I read above, minus Gravel, due to tiebreakers. Another way to look at that list would be to say it's the exact same lineup we had back in June, except Representative Eric Swalwell dropped out and will be replaced by Montana Governor Steve Bullock. Then, the next day, on Thursday night at 8pm Eastern, CNN will do some kind of live TV event to determine which candidates will appear on which nights. We are again having a two-night debate with ten slots on each night. We still don't know whether CNN will use a similar process to what NBC used in an attempt to mix higher and lower polling candidates across the two nights, or a purely random draw, or something else. Apparently the details of that lineup split are up to CNN, and they have not yet told us how they plan to do it. Expect to hear about that later today, or perhaps on Tuesday, and I will let you know when I know. And last up today, Representative Tulsi Gabbard was not on the campaign trail this weekend. Why not? Well, she's an active duty member of the Army National Guard, and this weekend she was on duty. Gabbard's sister Vrindavan managed her campaign Twitter account over the weekend and encouraged donors to push the campaign past 100,000 donors while Gabbard was otherwise engaged. At press time, I hadn't seen a tweet announcing whether they had met that goal. But, given that they were only a few hundred donors away, it's likely that by the time you hear this, Gabbard has picked up 100,000 donors and it's on her way toward 130,000, the number she needs for the September debates. Well, that is it for one more episode of the Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. So, this was the first episode with the new title and new logo. I hope you like them both. I spent the weekend gearing up for a summer wedding next weekend up in Maine, trying to figure out a good outfit for an outdoor wedding in July, which is a little different from my usual wedding getup. I'm more of like a tweed blazer kind of guy than a linen shirt kind of guy. So, you know, pushing the comfort zone slightly, and just keeping my fingers crossed that the humidity stays down. Oh, what's that you say? July? In Maine? By the coast? Oh, yeah, cool, cool, yeah, okay, great. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all tomorrow. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.